Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Well, today is the sixth anniversary of our church. We made it. We are out of diapers, we are potty trained, and we are finishing the kindergarten. Kindergarten, it's going great. Uh, Six years ago today, we launched, and what a great gift it's been. What a joy to celebrate uh, baptism today on on this anniversary Sunday. Thanks be to God for that. I can also share another point of celebration is on Friday, we closed on this building. So this building that we've been renting, we now own. Great. And uh, this month, we're, we're talking about something that may feel a bit archaic to some, but it's a new conversation for us, and it's a conversation about church membership. It's what we've been talking about for the month of January. Uh, some of you are not remotely ready for that, and it shows. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, now, some of you are not ready. You've, you've just been around for a little bit. Uh, I would come in to you. We're going to have a dinner Wednesday night called Welcome to Cornerstone. And so if it would benefit you to just learn some of the basics to begin uh, getting oriented to the life of this church, how do, you be, how do you begin building friendships? How can you grow um, in spiritual formation? How can you make a difference in the world through renewal along with this community? I invite you to come to that dinner. You can scan the QR code in front of you after the service to register that you're, that you're planning to come. We'll have dinner and uh, childcare if you have those needs. So it'd be great to get together. I think that 50 or so people are already signed up, but we have space for a little bit uh, more people. So I hope that you'll come. Others of you have perhaps been around for a while and you're at least entertaining that you want to join the church or you know you want to join the church, we're going to have a membership commitment ceremony on Thursday, February 1st uh, at 6.30. It'll be about 40 minutes long. And so uh, if you intend to join the church, you may know that now. You may need to get through the next couple sermons before you decide that or do a little more due diligence. Understandable. Uh, Helpful when you know to sign up to be a part of that, um, that ceremony so that we can plan on you. I hope that you will come. So we've talked about in week one of this, uh, what is the church? We talked about this January 7th. What is the church? Which may feel like uh, a a very, very obvious question, but an important one to explore. Last week, we talked about what is church membership? And today, we're going to talk about what do you need to know about membership at this church? I generally am finishing my sermon stuff on Sunday mornings at 6.30 a.m., and I walk back to the bedroom, and I'm kind of gearing up, and Emily says, Emily always asks, like, how are you feeling? And this morning, I say, guess what I'm about to tell you? And she said, the sermon is long. It's like, yeah, I say it literally every single week. I always worry about that. Some of you all perhaps often feel like my sermons are long. I don't know. 
There's so much I could say in this sermon. I will not be exhaustive by any means. There are things that I'd really like to go into, including what we call our deep hopes. That'll be a conversation for another time. Instead, what I'm going to focus on today is uh, the fact that we belong to a tradition called the Anglican Way. The Anglican Way. Um, that's something that uh, your moms have asked about, that some of you are wondering about. It's probably like the number one topic that comes up is, what is the deal with being Anglican? I hope that this is helpful. I hope that it offers some explanatory power for what we're doing here in this church. But before I hop into the thick of that, I want to offer a thesis statement for you to consider. My thesis is that every church is part of a tradition. Every church is part of a tradition. Now, you may say, my church growing up wasn't. I was a part of a Bible church. We just did the Bible, and we did not do tradition. Ah, but not so. Did you know that the Bible church tradition came out of Dallas Theological Seminary and Fellowship Bible in the early 1970s? Or you may say, well, I know we definitely didn't do tradition because I was a part of a non-denominational church. Probably many of us have been part of non-denoms at some point. Well, you know, independent non-denominational churches are actually part of the American Restoration Movement, also known as the Stone-Campbell Movement, which gave birth to the Churches of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, and the whole model for the non-denominational church. Okay, well, other people would say, I was definitely not part of a tradition because we were, like, charismatic. We were just open to whatever the Holy Spirit does. You can't put, like, peg a tradition on us. Okay, well, I grew up in a charismatic tribe called the Assemblies of God, and they might have said something similar, that we weren't a part of a tradition. We just do the Spirit. Well, the Assemblies of God came out of the Church of God in Christ, which came out of disaffected members of the American Baptist Church, which came out of something else before that. Every church is part of some kind of tradition. Almost all of these were byproducts of the splintering that came through the Protestant Reformation. This is barely scratching the surface of the history of denominations. You know, the Nazarene Church came out of the Methodist Church, came out of the Anglican Church, came out of something else. And in this conversation right now, I've basically only gone back 600 of the church's 2,000 years, not even touching what happened before Luther nailed the 95 theses to the doors of Wittenberg Chapel. Every church is part of a tradition. What I'm getting at is so many people have been following Jesus for so long that there is nothing new under the sun. That whatever you're doing, whatever we do, in whatever way we do it, has probably been done before. And if you're truly doing something novel, if you're really and truly innovating, I hate to break it to you, it's probably heretical. <laughs> and that heresy has probably been committed before as well. So it's kind of like if, if you were instructed to chart your own path driving from New York to L.A., you may come up with a truly original path, but in all likelihood you'll find that you're just say, taking the same path that someone took before you. And you'd find, if we were to study this on a macro level, that there are different groups of people who prefer different methods, different pathways from New York to L.A. for different reasons. You have some groups of people who are like, we do not want to drive through the state of Ohio. You're like, okay. There's some people who prefer northern Missouri and really don't want to drive through southern Iowa. There are other people who just reroute all together and they go down to Miami and they just say, this is Los Angeles County. 
If we studied, we'd find that there, there's some well-trod paths that people consistently used, and were we to study the different people who go on the different paths, we'd probably find some commonalities in their personality and their temperament. Every church is part of a tradition. And I don't use the word tradition as a, a four-letter word. You know, Jesus ridiculed the scribes and the Pharisees because they favored their tradition over the law of Moses. I'm not using this in, in quite the same pejorative sense. When I say that every church is a part of a tradition, I mean that every church has a flavor. Every church has stories or values or angles of understanding God that's particular to them. And this is, at the most optimis optimistic way of telling the story, a lovely thing. This is a very enriching thing to appreciate that like a bunch of art lovers standing before a vast work and each of them coming at a different angle of emphasis, each commenting on the beauty of the totality, so with the church of Jesus Christ, there are different angles, different flavors, different stories attesting to the beauty of the gospel. And this can be a good thing. Our traditions are shaped by geography. Our traditions are shaped by historical context. They're shaped by political context. There's a lot of history between the church and politics. Our churches, are, our traditions are even shaped by their technological context. So think about how different it was to do church before Gutenberg invented the printing press. And so much of the Protestant Reformation was fueled by the advent of the printing press and the ability to distribute leaflets and books at a much wider scale than was ever possible before. Or think about those of you who have been born since the year 2000. You have grown up in an era of church world where there's this thing of multi-site models of ministry, where a preacher is in one place and their face is being broadcast to lots of places, not even in the same city or state, sometimes all over the world. That is a model of, of a tradition of church ministry that didn't exist outside of a technology that made it possible. Our traditions are shaped by these things. Now, sometimes we over-enshrine our traditions, and we underappreciate how much the tradition we've inherited was influenced by its place and time. So Roman Catholicism is a tradition in the way of following Jesus that was incubated in the Rome and attached to the Roman Empire. Eastern Orthodoxy is a tradition in the way of following Jesus that was incubated in Constantinople. Calvinism is a traditional way of understanding the gospel that was incubated in Geneva. A Coptic Christianity is a really, really ancient as it gets version of following Jesus, understanding Christianity that was in Egypt. Or Philip shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian church is as ancient as it gets. In each instance, the Christianity that came out of those historical and geographical contexts in its flavor reflects the soil that it was first planted in. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't like this. This doesn't sound very good. It sounds like, you know, the, the gospel is getting polluted. Well, I think you can even go to the New Testament and begin to see the emergence of traditions. Go to Acts chapter 15. You've got what's called the Council of Jerusalem where the church had been a sect, the, the way had been a sect within Judaism that was now spilling over to non-Jewish peoples, Gentiles. And at the Council of Jerusalem, you've got Peter who's representing Jewish-majority churches. You've got Paul advocating for Gentile-majority churches. And we realize that depending on your ethnic identity, your city of origin, and who shared the gospel with you, you might have a slightly different flavor in your understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. 
It's not unlike, you know, pizza in our city. There are lots and lots of different pizza joints. They're making pizza in different ways. As long as it's within certain constraints, you can still call it pizza. And so it is with the church of Jesus Christ. There are different traditions, different groups of people having a different angle on things. But within certain constraints, there's one church of Jesus Christ in the world. Every church is, is part of a tradition. Sometimes we are conscious of the traditions of which we are a part. Sometimes we are not conscious of the traditions of which we are a part. But at all times, we are influenced by the ways that people have followed Jesus in the past, what I'm calling traditions. From the view of history, some traditions are really old. And from the view of history, some traditions are really, really new. Some traditions use language, metaphors, stories. They have flavors that is discontinuously different than some of the ways that people have talked about following Jesus in the past. We're often unselfconscious of our traditions. But I think it's really important to say for any church, it reflects a lack of perspective to say that you're not part of a tradition. And it's equally important to say for any church, it reflects a lack of humility to say that your tradition is the pure version of biblical Christianity. Bishop Leslie Newbegin said this. He said, from its very beginnings, the church faces us with the dark mystery of sin by which she lives and acts in a manner that contradicts her essential nature. So we are the flock of Christ. From the beginning, we were the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and sin was lurking at our door. She who is essentially one, the church, is divided. She who is essentially holy is unclean. She who is essentially apostolic forgets her missionary task. Newbegin says, no doctrine of the church can be true, which does not match the reality of this dark mystery of sin in the church with a doctrine of divine grace profound enough to deal with it without evasion and which does not in some measure explain how a body which by sin denies its own nature is yet accepted by God and used as a means of His grace. What I want us to appreciate is we're talking about membership in our context, but it's just you are thinking about following Jesus in the company of the church. What I want us to appreciate is that we are not the first people on the scene that we are not the first people scooted up to the table having these conversations. And so it is good and right for us to recognize the gifts and the limitations of all of our traditions. Jesus told Peter, when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, said, on your confession, I will build my church. And in the next breath, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And inasmuch as our traditions are in alignment with the way the apostolic ministry that Jesus has passed on, inasmuch as our churches are a part of that grand story, we're to run down that path with courage. And inasmuch as our traditions deviate from the way of Jesus, we're to give them their proper rebuke and critique. They have gifts and they have limitations. So as we have these conversations about following Jesus in the, in the company of the church, we must do so with humility, recognizing there are things that we don't know. There are things that we do not understand. There are sometimes things that we don't like that are still true. 
As we follow Jesus, we should do so with curiosity. I love the definition of theology as faith-seeking understanding. It's like I do believe, but I want to get my head around it even more. We should follow Jesus with curiosity, being reflective, being open to wisdom from of old in how to faithfully follow Jesus. And we must do so with courage. Because now 2,000 years removed from the resurrection of Jesus, we find at times that the world is like an airplane that is flying upside down and the Lord Jesus is teaching us how to right the ship, which may make us look weird, bizarre. We need to embrace looking like dinosaurs to people in the world because we're coming at it from a totally different orientation and perspective. As we consider in our time the, the path of faithfulness of following Jesus in our traditions, I want to admit that I do have a bias in how I'm approaching these conversations. And it comes to me that the lens through which I'm seeing this comes to me from Jeremiah 6. Jeremiah is my favorite prophet. In Jeremiah 6.16, some of you have heard me preach on this, says, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. To the best of our ability, with humility and curiosity and courage, as we think about the various paths that we could take in navigating this complex world of ours, I have a bias that we should ask God not for the popular path, nor should we ask God for the path of least resistance, but instead we should ask God for what is the ancient path in this Jeremiah 6 sense. When we're thinking about an ethical challenge, when we're thinking about a theological question, when we're wrestling with a discipleship difficulty, I believe that we should seek out the paths that the saints have trod from of old and learn from their example. This idea of listening to tradition, considering tradition, if you think about it in a democratic sense, is like giving a vote to the dead those who are not here. Maybe they took that way, thinking about standing at a crossroads. Maybe they took that way because they saw something that we, in our cultural context, can't see. Maybe they went that way because they knew something that we don't know. We know, looking back on the checkered history of the Church of Jesus Christ with both sin and grace present in its history, we know that there are times that the church erred. But even then, if they deviated from an even more ancient path, we need to know that too. My bias is that in exploring the theology and the practice of following Jesus, if you're going to deviate from the ancient paths and the words of Ricky Ricardo to Lucy, you've got some explaining to do. Like three people know that reference at this point. <laughs> John Artem only dated references. Um, so the Anglican stuff. You've perhaps heard that uh, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, uh, was started because Henry VIII was really mad. He wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon in, in the early 1500s, and the Pope said, nope. And so Henry VIII threw a big hissy fit. He's like, well, I'm just going to start my own church then. And then the Anglican church was born. That's probably the version that some of you have heard. Some of that is true, and there's a lot more to it than that. If you really want to dive in, there's a book that's great. It's super readable. Uh, it's called The Anglican Way by Thomas McKenzie. You may find that helpful as an orientation to kind of the, the broader Anglican way of following Jesus. Some of you may like that. 
But whether it was an accident of history or an act of divine providence, what happened in the creation of the Anglican Way and in the course of history brought together several ancient pathways within Christianity and unified them. So shaped by its geographical context, there was a nascent Christianity that was present on the island of England in the 4th century. There was a missionary named Augustine of Canterbury, not the same as the Augustine of Hippo who wrote the Confessions, the great theologian. But there was an ancient Christianity that was separated from Rome in the very, very beginning. The, the Anglican way of being Christian brought in much of the theology and the worship of Roman Catholicism brought in much of the helpful correctives of the Protestant Reformation, and in time even integrated some of the best of the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement, which emphasizes the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So one of the ways our tradition talks about, it kind of simplifies this, this language here to talk about its sources of influence, is using the metaphor of a river that's being fed by three different streams. There is, um, the first stream is what they call the evangelical stream. And just for the sake of clarity, uh, this word is used differently now. When I say the evangelical stream, I do not mean the Republican Party in the United States stream. I mean evangelical in a classical sense, which recognizes the authority of Scripture to guide and govern the church, which is the, the impetus for us to be on mission together, that we should share the gospel with people. The people need to have an individual response to the gospel of Jesus. This, in the, in the best sense, is what we mean by evangelical. But there's also this second stream that's called the liturgical stream, which recognizes that we are not the first on the scene in church world and integrates some of the best ways that the church has spoken through the millennia. We're talking about things like liturgies, but we're also talking things like creeds, where the united church has said, this is how we understand what God the Father is doing in sending His Son and in sending the Spirit. We also inherit through the liturgical uh, stream structure where we have overseers or bishops in the church. We have presbyters. We have deacons in the church. We have things like ordination. Scripture uses the language of the laying on of hands. All of this we inherit from this liturgical stream. And then there's this other third stream that comes in, and it's like, great, you've constructed a perfect fireplace, but if it's not lit up with the power of the Holy Spirit, then it's a waste. And this is that third charismatic stream which emphasizes the person, the work of the Spirit to gift and, and, and convict and empower the church to give witness to the resurrection and lordship of Jesus. And these three streams flow together as one river. Now, I, have, I joined the Anglican Church as a priest, and our church was adopted in January of 2020. And one of the things that I have learned since joining the Anglican Church is that people have been fighting about what it means to be Anglican from the very beginning. And I think one reason this is true is that the Anglican church exists within a tension. These three streams flowing together as one river demonstrates this is a church that's managing different influences. It's simultaneously Catholic and Protestant. It's contemplative and it's charismatic. It values written prayers and also wants us to pour out our hearts to God in love. And you see the diversity of these tensions if you visit other Anglican churches. You may attend some Anglican churches and it feels like, like, is this a Roman Catholic church? 
You may, you may attend some that are like at the opposite end of the spectrum that feel like a non-denominational, evangelical, or charismatic church, and you'll see everything in between. Uh, I feel really at home in the meeting of these waters based on my own kind of ecclesiastical story, the church world that I've navigated. I feel really at home in, in the meeting of these waters. And what's been fascinating uh, in time to observe is that God sent, seems to be sending to us people who have some of this background, who are all finding their place in this tradition, or you might even just say in our church. So when we have Welcome to Cornerstone dinners like we do on Wednesday, it's always the case that there are Catholics and Orthodox people there. And it's always the case that there are Baptist and Bible church people there. And it's always the case that you've got non-denominational charismatics or denominational Pentecostals there, all like finding their place of home in one church. And I think that's the Lord's doing. It's some of the gift that this tradition is bringing to bear on the world through the Anglican way. But really important, some of you may be like squirming because of how many times I've said the word Anglican. What I want to emphasize to you today is that I don't care even a little bit if you call yourselves Anglican. I don't care even a little bit if you like tell people it's an Anglican church or not. I like following the Anglican way in as much as it puts our feet on ancient and faithful paths of following Jesus. And if ever it deviates, we ought to course correct. I knew that this was the right way for us when I heard uh, the bishop of this diocese, Todd Hunter, say basically the same thing. He said, being a, a really good Anglican at its best is just trying to be a really good Christian. And I like being part of the Anglican tradition in the ways that it feels like it's inviting us down the ancient path and taking, enabling us to zoom out of our cultural moment of, of American evangelicalism. That's where I like being a part of the tradition. And so as we talk about church membership for the first time, you need to know that the default intention, intention of this church is not toward what does this pastor or the next pastor think, or what do the people desire or demand, or not even what is the most popular way forward, but instead the question that we're trying to ask, the intention we're encoding to participation in this tradition is asking the question, where is the trailhead to the ancient path in our time? How is the Spirit in our time inviting us to go down the narrow path? How is the Spirit inviting us to walk the way of faithfulness, of self-denial, of carrying our cross in continuity with all who have faithfully followed Jesus in generations past? So a recent example of how this kind of intention or this kind of thinking is working its way out in the life of our church um, came when I made the announcement that beginning in May, uh, we're only going to welcome to the table people who've been baptized, the communion table, to people who've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, I did in a totally voluntary way. So there wasn't like big brother or big bishop behind my back saying, wagging his finger and say, getting compliance. Just realized we're out of compliance with, with the, the pattern of the early church and with Anglican practice. And so voluntarily, I said, let's do it. I had a sermon on institutions. That's my thinking. You can go back and listen to it if you want to know what I'm talking about. But I, I made this decision that this is what we were going to do. And some people heard that. And based on your experience, you're like, all of a sudden, this church got judgmental and started excluding people. Some of you are like, based on your experience, communion is 
Like the most intimate thing, like who are you? Who is anyone to stand before me and, and the Lord Jesus at the table? Who's, like what is your place to say who can and cannot receive? Uh, some people just like wonder legitimately, like how do you come at that? What's the reasoning behind that? Why do I have to be baptized to receive communion? That's a very understandable question. And the way I'm approaching that question with to the best of my ability, humility and curiosity and even a little bit of courage reflects the posture and the intention that I'm, I'm talking about today in asking, where is the ancient path here for us? So what we see when we open up the New Testament is that repentance and faith and baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit all get kind of jumbled up together into one sweeping motion. For anybody who wants to start down the path of following Jesus, repentance, faith, baptism, the gift of the Spirit, it's all one big sweeping thing together. You go to John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking with Nicodemus and he says, I'll tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Or you go to Matthew 28 where Jesus is giving his great commission. He's like, hey, real quick, this is the last thing I want to say to you. He called them all together and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. He said, church, my followers, the work I'm in is in your going and in your discipling and in your baptizing and in your teaching people to obey everything I've commanded. It's all swept up together in one motion. Peter said it on the day of Pentecost. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, and it's for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. You cannot read the epistles of Paul without seeing him somewhere riff on the significance of our baptized identities, Romans 6. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. As I've shared recently for much of the first 300 years of the church, not only could you not receive communion, you couldn't come to a worship gathering until you were baptized. Even the example of Jesus and when he was baptized commends itself to us for reflection. Setting the example for us, Jesus was baptized before he started his ministry, not after he finished it. And so we, when we begin the journey of following Jesus, are invited to be baptized, to have God's grace and favor proclaimed over us, not getting baptized once we figure everything out. The New Testament teaches us to implement and to live into our baptism, not earn it through self-perfecting effort. Well, furthermore, as we read about the role of Holy Communion in the life of the church, the centrality of, of communion in the practice of the church, I see this especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we hear Paul's warning to eat and drink in a worthy manner, suggesting that some people not eating and drinking worthily, it says, are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. What a mystery. We find ourselves confronted with the reality that there's something more going on at the table than eat the cracker, drink the juice, remember Jesus, and feel guilty. 
There's more going on at the table than that. There's something supernatural happening at the table. And if those who are baptized can receive in an unworthy manner, how much more those who are not? What I'm getting at is, 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 you, is you enter the imagination of the authors of the New Testament. The, the question, why do I have to be baptized before I receive communion, is an understandable one in our time, but I think would have been a total head-scratcher to them. Kind of like if we asked, why do I have to start the car in order to drive it? Or kind of like if we asked, well, why do I have to unlock the door before I open it and walk through it? The ancient path teaches us that the journey of following Jesus begins with repentance and faith and baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That this is the normative place where it all begins for us, and so it should be the place where all of us who express our intention to follow Jesus should in humility, with curiosity, and with courage take Him at His word and be baptized. And furthermore, the ancient path teaches us that this table, through these holy mysteries, God somehow wants to meet with us and nourish us in a, in a way that is beyond our ability to articulate it. And so we're invited to come with gratitude and with faith to receive in a worthy manner, reflecting and repenting as we come in confidence that the Lord Jesus wants to meet us here and feed us from his hand his own life and breath. So may the Spirit of God so work in our time that we would renounce our own wisdom, that we would, like the prophet called for us to do, ask for the ancient path. And may, all, may we do all of this in a desire to fulfill the mission that we articulated first of the, for the first time six years ago to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, now and for all time, I ask that in, in any way in which your word is misrepresented, your intentions are miscommunicated in this church, that you would write us, that you would correct us, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be humble and curious and coachable and courageous, embracing at times being misunderstood for flying right side up or, or even, even like in a sloppy way, just trying to obey. May we embrace the ancient path, which at times may be the unpopular one. Lord, I know that this is a sensitive topic, baptism and communion for so many people, and so may, may any failure of mine, Lord, be softened and sweetened by your grace, beckoning us to, to draw near to the Lord Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work, stirring our hearts and minds, uniting us to one another in Christ Jesus. Do the things that I cannot do, we cannot do on our own. I pray that you pour out your Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. For the, for the monumental task ahead of us of following Jesus in the company of the church, would you send your spirit and give us power adequate to the challenge. Lord Jesus, we honor you as our king. To you, we pledge our allegiance. And I pray, pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. 
If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.